0: This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics ministry designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the Academy offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly e-books covering a wide variety of subject matter and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the Academy goes live and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the wait list. You'll get early access to the Facebook group for free as a thank you You're listening to the Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. This week we are going to ask a question, attempt to answer it, and talk a little bit more about the subject. Can we ever find the biblical kinds? Can we ever find the biblical kinds? When we look to the Bible for our information about the history of the earth, it turns out that things are quite different from the standard mainstream interpretation of things. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, the view of the Bible that I hold uh, would tend to be a um, what is known as a concordist, young age creationist view. That is, I believe that we can glean accurate historical and scientific data from the Bible, even back into its uh, earliest chapters. And I have reasons for holding that interpretation, most of which we will not go into in this particular um, lesson of the the podcast. But uh, nevertheless, that's the view that we hold, and we find that things are described much differently on this view than in the mainstream scientific view. And... In the biblical way of looking at things, we find organisms classified by uh, what is called the kind, or in Hebrew, it is the word men, M-I-N. We find in the earliest chapters of our Bibles that it uses a phrase uh, similar to this. It says um, that an animal would reproduce after its kind. And that is the sort of Language that is used. And creation scientists have built on that language in ways that we are going to discuss uh, this morning that um, help us to understand the modern way we should understand how organisms can be classified. And we'll get into some of the nuance of that in just a little bit, but just know that that's the building block. So that's why I say, can we ever find the biblical kinds? Another way of looking at the question that I'm asking is, can we ever know what the original organisms were that God created? Now, if you've never thought about that anymore, uh, Think about it like this. God did not create the common house cat 6,000 years ago. God did not create uh, a dog, anything like the one that is in your backyard or perhaps in your home. Um, He did not create anything like that. 6,000 years ago. If current thought on creationist biology is correct, and I think there's some really good reason to believe that that is the case. And so we'll talk about that a little bit this morning, and perhaps if you've never thought in those terms before, if you've never thought about things that way before, this is new to you, and that's great. This is exposing you to a new way of looking at things. So we're excited about that. Before we dive um, into the main uh, topic of information today, I want to talk to you about a couple of things, just a little bit of housekeeping on the front end here. Uh, First of all, I'd really like to um, advertise the fact uh, that our uh, ministry is available to come uh, present, to come to come speak uh, to your church or if you have a, a small event of some sort that you would like us to uh, participate in. We would be interested uh, in potentially coming out and presenting uh, some good information from a biblical worldview. Note that we do speak on creation topics, but not only creation topics. And so I'm happy to come speak to a church audience or to Sunday school class or just whatever uh, small group However, uh, we, we you know need to arrange it, um, but I have some subjects that I deal with on a regular basis, and you can find these. I'm going to mention them to you here now, but you can find these at steveshram.com slash preaching, and I will certainly put that into the show notes for you to take a look at. Uh, but we, uh, we, we speak on a number of different topics. Um, whose truth is true? Whose truth is true? Uh, we go through and 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 take a look at um, what does it mean for something to be true. Is truth relative? Is it objective? Uh, is truth something? Is it a property of reality? Are we are we bounded by truth? Um, can we just say anything goes? And uh, and, and that's how we um, fight our way through life. Uh, you know, survival of the fittest kind of thing. But what's true for you isn't true for me. So we look at questions like that and really get to the bottom of of this postmodern way of thinking and help people to think more clearly about that. Uh, What happened in the beginning? What happened in the beginning? This is another uh, talk we do that gets divided into three other little sections uh, that we could do each of those three sections as an individual talk, uh, or we could just keep it all under the umbrella, um, a little bit shorter version of each, and do it under one talk. What happened in the beginning? Uh, What Creation? Evolution? What? Uh, What's the big deal? Um, Is there any evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? Uh, Who's this Jesus character that the Bible tells us about? Uh, And is there any hardcore evidence that what the Bible tells us about him is true? Well, there is. Uh, By the way, much of it comes from... From the Bible itself. You say, well, that's circular reasoning. Uh, well, of course it's not circular reasoning. Uh, if you want to find out why, have us in to come speak, <laughs> all right? We'd be happy to come um, give you some information about why the Bible is reliable when it speaks to matters of Jesus and, uh, and who the person of Christ was. Uh, and then we have giving the ultimate defense. Three strategies for navigating spiritual conversations. How do we move past uh, just mudslinging and rhetoric and um, subjective uh, language and harmful language? How do we move past that and really begin to have more meaningful uh, spiritual conversations? And that's what we deal with in that one. Can we trust God's word? Well, very simply, uh, can we? Uh, do, is, does what we have in our hand accurately represent what the writers wrote down, and does it accurately reflect uh, what God wanted us to know? Is it the word of the living God? And then we have, what's the deal with dinosaurs? Uh, dinosaurs are the crown prince of evolutionism, and uh, children learn from a very young age uh, that dinosaurs are supposedly the proof of, for biological uh, evolution, and um, we take a look at that claim, look at dinosaurs from a young age perspective, and uh, really get down to the bottom of that subject. Not we ourselves, the rise and fall of atheism. That's the talk. Not we ourselves, the rise and fall of atheism. And in that one, we um, actually look at a very um, unusual passage of Scripture to be talking about atheism, Psalm 100, and we uh, dig into the bottom of that and talk about uh, the rise of atheism, really where this uh, atheistic idea um, came from, and the fall of atheism, uh, where it's going, and how we can um, be combatants against it, and how we can guard our faith against the claims of those uh, who do not believe in God and are actually hostile to those of us who do. Then we have the sacredness of humanity. And uh, what about things like abortion? What about sexual uh, identity, transgender rights, things like that? We talk about those subjects and, and uh, begin to understand why it's important that we hold the stance we do. Not just because of um, even necessarily what the Bible says. We look at the biblical angle. We look at the scientific angle. Begin to understand why it's important that humans are important. All right, and then uh, we also have Mabul, a flood of evidence. Uh, The word Mabul is the Hebrew word used to describe the global flood in the Bible. And so in this uh, particular presentation, we go through and talk about evidence, biblical and scientific evidence for the global flood as recorded in Genesis 6 through 9. We have then a, a meeting with reality. God and the problem of evil, a meeting with reality, God, and the problem of evil. And in this, we begin to look at why the problem of evil is actually not a problem for Christianity. Um, The existence of evil itself implies the existence of good. And if you have good, you must have a standard of good. And so thus, we must deal with uh, reality. And very quickly, we bump into many problems when we start looking at reality that make uh, evil and good categories that are incompatible with a naturalistic kind of reality. And so we we look deeper at it from that angle. Science in the scriptures, uh, exploring modern science through the lens of God's word, we go through Honestly, this is just a quick survey of some of the different scientific claims that uh, appear in our Bibles um, that, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not real sure how somebody who uh, was living in the, the day that the Bible writers were living would have known this information. It speaks to the fact that we are dealing with a supernatural book, and I think that's certainly an interesting uh, study. So um, then we have, finally, how to be a Christian in The classroom. And in uh, this particular uh, talk, we take a look at what it means to try to go through college and even through elementary. Uh, school learning some of the things that we do and how to talk to our teachers, how to have more meaningful discussions, and how to kind of filter through some of that information back uh, in through a, a biblical worldview. And so that's helpful both for students who attend and also for their parents to kind of uh, deal with some of the ideas that are imported in by teachers and professors, even unknowingly, even even if they are not aware of what is being done, there are ideas in virtue of the kind of materials that are taught that uh, are imported into the front end of things, so to speak. They are a priori justifications against the existence of God uh, that inform the kind of things that they teach, and so we talk about how to identify those things. Um, and how to overcome them and even to challenge them uh, in certain situations. So um, those are kind of the main topics that we deal with. Of course, uh, I am a preacher, so I'm happy to come speak on uh, any number of things. Um, I, I have regular sermons as well that I uh, preach that are more of a, a you know, spiritually, um uh, a developmental kind of sermons and, of course, things of that nature, uh, more theologically driven things. And so we have those, but uh, a large portion of what we like to do is apologetics and, and creation related. So um, if you're interested in having us out, I know I've taken a lot of time to talk about that, but this is a part of our ministry that we would like to see a little bit more um, happening in. And so I thought it would bring that to your attention this morning, if this is something you might be interested in helping us with. Um One more thing, uh, again, quickly, before we move into the main um, topic for today, is uh, a a new donation process that we have put into place, and to this point, um, I've been uh, doing ministry work, uh, online ministry work here, since April, I believe, of 2017, so we're a little more than a year into the work we're doing. And to this point, I have put everything out there available for free. I have not asked for a a dime for anything, and and that's how we've gone. Um, The more I see God working, however, um, I am beginning to realize that uh, we can't do it alone. Not only am I seeing that we can't do it alone, but uh, the more I read my Bible, the more convinced I am that we uh, shouldn't do it alone. And so uh, there are uh, reasons why giving to ministry is an important um, subject as you approach reading the Bible, and you see evidence for this all over, the New Testament especially, uh, also in the Old Testament. And so we have decided to implement a way to allow those who have been blessed and feel led of the Lord, that they would like to contribute to the furtherance of The ministry work here uh, to be able to make that contribution. Um, And so just the other day, we put up a page on our website that you can find if you go to the website and just uh, hover over where it says ministry now in the top bar uh, and scroll down to partner with us. And uh, I'm going to make that link a little more accessible. I just have not done that yet. So um, partner with us. Go there and take a look at the kind of information that we've laid out. I um, gave some financial information about the nature of the kind of things that we would be accepting money for and kind of what that money would go to. I uh, put some needs out there, which I'm going to give you a couple of them here. And um, if this is something that you find yourself interested in that maybe you would want to um, contribute, uh, we would be glad <laughs> to have you um on board with us and to help us be able to further this ministry. Um, we've been hearing some good things from people. We have had open doors to begin publishing content in more and more, uh, blogs and other online places other than our own. And it's very exciting. And, um, the more that I do it, the more I want to be doing it on a more full-time basis. Um, but again, uh, we got to pay the bills. So I've got a full-time job now and that's fine. Uh, but I have for a while now felt the Lord calling our family into full-time ministry. And we want to get there in one day and be able to have more time to produce even more uh, free faith affirming resources for Christians and resources that challenge um, skeptical belief and unbelief. And we want to ultimately see people saved by the gospel. That's, that's the goal. And, uh, I've, I believe I have the Lord's uh, calling on my life to do that in a way where um, I'm unencumbered by having to worry about full time uh, income, and I don't I don't say that um, in such a way as to be derogatory towards those who have full time income. Um, I'm happy with my full time income. Um, I'm happy with my job. I don't necessarily want to leave that, um, but I do feel that uh, the work that I am most called to do in the world is this work of spreading the creation message and the uh, message of the rationality of the Christian faith. And um, simply put, I would just like to be doing that full time because I think that's my greatest contribution uh, to the kingdom. And. So we are accepting donations to that end, but also uh, just to cover some general ministry needs that we have that we feel would help to make a better uh, experience for everybody involved. And we put some of those out there. I'm proud to say that the money has already come in since we put it up to make our first purchase to help with. Uh, the Creation Academy. We were able to uh, purchase uh, with a very generous $100 donation. We were able to purchase some new recording equipment for the podcast. So I'm happy to say that next week, we will have much, much, much better audio quality for uh, the podcast, especially if you're an audiophile, you will notice uh, many things. Um, And so we're excited about that. I mean, we've I've been wanting this equipment, honest to goodness, since we started and just not have had the extra to be able to purchase this equipment. And um, it's a real blessing to know that somebody out there is willing to help. And as a result of that, we are going to be able to come to you with much better quality next week. So we have a few needs listed out there right now. Um, $197 will allow us to uh, get the necessary software f- to allow recurring donations to be made into uh, the ministry uh, for those of us who would like to support on a monthly basis. $109 um, would get us the... Uh, necessary software to integrate a course structure into the creation academy website that i'm currently developing and working on um and we're really excited to see what the lord's doing there i've got some more feedback from people who um are interested in joining and so i'm really excited about that i think we're going to be able to um launch with with a good a good not huge but a good solid customer um base of those you know wanting more uh, high quality information about creation. So we're excited about that. And uh, of course, that particular contribution would help us to get student progress, quizzing, uh, things like that incorporated as well. And then we need approximately $600 to give us the funds necessary to incorporate uh, with 501c3 status. And this, of course, if you're familiar, will allow us to be able to offer these um, donations in a tax-deductible manner, so you will be able to deduct these donations as charitable giving uh, with the IRS. So we don't have that status now. Um, Gifts made to the ministry at this point are not tax deductible, um, but with a $600 gift, or once we reach that point, we could certainly um, go ahead and do that. And then kind of the stretch goal, the the biggest goal that I have listed out there is $3,500. And um, this is a big number, but uh, it's the Lord's uh, job to provide. If, if this is what He wants, if this is uh, the Lord's will, then we believe that He can provide this, uh, and we believe that He will provide this. And this is uh, this particular amount will allow us to postpone other projects that we have going on, and really begin to create high-quality video content for um, the Creation Academy. Uh, look, we're offering the Creation Academy at a, a at a low cost, uh, 6 dollars per month, uh, and that is just not going to be enough to um, really sustain it long term uh, for that reason. Over the years, we might have to raise the prices, but uh, my plan right now is to grandfather in. Everybody who signs up, while the price is what it is, it will stay at six ninety nine per month no matter what, but uh, we do need some extra funds to help go towards paying for the videographers and the editors and things like that to help us get... High quality information recorded for that, and so that's kind of our stretch goal. And uh, if uh, if the Lord's blessed you financially, and you would be willing and able to give a gift of that size, uh, we would be tremendously. Tremendously uh, grateful to you. And um, and again, we'll thank the Lord for it, and He will get all of the glory. And I trust He would get all the glory from your ends as well. And so we're just thankful for what the Lord is doing. It, it, again, no pressure here, uh, but if it's something where the Lord has made it evident to you that you have the ability to help and the desire to help, and um, here's the thing even if it's a dollar, you could donate a dollar. $5, uh, anybody who gets a donation $10 and above, there are some additional benefits that you receive um, as a as a thank you for that. And I'll let you see what those are uh, by going to the website following the link that will be in the show notes that says partner with us. You can see what those benefits are. And um, if you would like to contribute, we would certainly, certainly welcome. Uh, every donation, big or small, it does not matter, um, is a Huge help and a huge blessing to us as we strive to get the gospel out in a day where it's harder than ever, uh, in one sense, to do. It's harder than ever to connect with hearts, I think, in this day. But at the same time, technology has allowed us and made it possible to happen. And so um, we want to thank you for your gift that will help us to that end. So. I took quite a long time this morning getting some things out of the way, but I appreciate your patience and sticking around with me, and um, let's go ahead and dive right into what we want to talk about today. Can we ever find the biblical kinds? Can we ever find the biblical kinds? Well, first of all, what on earth is a kind? Um... What is a kind? Now, as we go throughout this lesson, we're going to flesh out the specifics of that. Um, But here is kind of a general definition uh, from a leading creationist biologist, Dr. Todd Wood. Quote, Genesis 1 records the origin of creatures during creation week. And the phrase, after its kind and variations thereof, is used to describe the creation of all plants and animals. Creationists have long understood these kinds as something like categories of species. Within each kind, species descend from those originally created organisms, but there has been, and indeed could be, no evolution from one kind to another. Brahmins and their members are very much the linchpins of creationist biology. Design, natural evil, Speciation and biogeography all make sense only within the context of the Brahmin. Now that word Brahman, if you've never heard that, it is uh, again derived from the Hebrew word Min. We mentioned that at the very beginning. The Hebrew word Min, you'll notice, is in there, and also the word Bara, B-A-R-A, which is the Hebrew for the word create. So these are the created kinds. That is what a Brahman is. Um, Now, the soundbite version uh, of of what I just read to you, uh, if I were to describe it in a way that was very succinct, would sound something like this. A biblical kind is a a biblically-based taxonomic classification which identifies fossils and living organisms according to their original created category and relationship. I'm going to repeat that one more time. A biblically-based taxonomic classification, which identifies fossil and living organisms according to their original created category and relationship. Now, this word is, of course, derived from the Hebrew men, um, but we should not necessarily, And here's where I want to kind of clarify a little bit. We should not think that created kinds are directly related to this Hebrew term in a um, biological sense, all right? Now, Pete Williams has done some work on this, and in 1997, he argued the following, quote, whereas one would uh, probably think from previous creationist research that men is a word that denotes a constant taxonomic level, this view cannot yet be substantiated. Thus, in using the term Brahman to represent the concept of created Uh, kinds, barominologists should not understand themselves to um, be making a statement about the meaning of the Hebrew word, men. And so this is uh, important. We should not directly relate uh, these two concepts. But nevertheless, we can still use it as a construct, all right? Now, the actual term um, barominology, or some people call it barominology, um again however you would prefer to pronounce that was coined in 1941 by Frank Lewis March uh, uh, Marsh, excuse me. Um, and I should say that the term Barahman is actually, was coined by him. Uh, was actually, um, developed by Dr. Kurt Wise, uh, around 1990, um, 1991, 92, somewhere in there. Um, and he proposed a field of study based on this term baraman coined by Frank Lewis Marsh in 19... 19- 41, and he was building uh, on a long-standing tradition of uh, associating the Genesis kinds um, with reproductive isolation, all right? And this uh, this whole theme kind of goes back to 1871, uh, and there were some even before that who thought in these categories, but the first published work to really start dealing with this and associating... Um, the Hebrew term men with the Genesis kinds um, in terms of a biological structure uh, that began around 1871. So, in 2003, and I'm just kind of giving you a little history here, um, Todd Wood and others argued for a refined barrament concept, which avoids equating the term Barahman with uh, any biblical category. Um, the reason they did this, um, and they said this, although men has been a mainstay of creation biology for many years, there is very little linguistic support for viewing it as a scientific term in the modern Sense close quote. So again, they're kind of piggybacking off of Pete Williams' work there, and actually, they do cite it in that um, in that paper, a refined Behrman concept. So, uh, in looking at this, then broadly speaking, uh, current creationist thought is that the created kind is most likely representative of the family level of the Linnaean classification system. Of course, you uh, are familiar from science class, and this is not as widely used anymore. Uh, The categories are expanded and a little different. But uh, generally, um, evolutionary thought kind of still goes along the lines of the um, Linnaean classification system. Careless um, Linnaeus uh, originally came up with the system, you know, um, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. And so uh, we see that the men, the biblical kind is um, possibly lower or higher in certain cases um, in the tax- taxonomic level uh, than the family level in the Linnaean system, but nevertheless it's kind of hovers around that uh, based on the most current research. Uh, so again, we're talking about what a men is, what a kind is, a biblical kind, we're we're crafting this idea because, in evolutionary terms, all of life is continuous. All of life shares a common ancestor of some sort. And each uh, linea- uh, lineage, each organism, can be traced back to a common ancestor between that and another organism, which could be traced back to a common ancestor between that and another organism, and that is how this tree is built. Um, but if we look at things from a creationist perspective, and we look at the fact that when we when we see the family level of organisms, we're probably looking at uh, what the Bible would consider a, a kind. If we do make that association... It means a couple of important things. First of all, it means we are not dealing with modern species. And I alluded to this earlier, but um, it means your house cat was not created 6,000 years ago. Uh, The ancestor of your house cat was created 6,000 years ago. And it's likely, uh, very likely, that this common ancestor is the common ancestor of your house cat and a lion, uh, the big cats. You say, that's evolution. No. No, that's not evolution. We're talking about organisms that are part of the same family. They share a common ancestor. The difference is, on the creationist view, and this goes to my next point, is there are limits to common ancestry. And I wrote down that these limits are due to age considerations, but as I'm thinking about that, they're due to much more than age considerations. And in fact, that's why paraminology, or the study of created kinds, even exists, is to identify what those limitations are. But again, it should be said, we do not have the time for Darwinian biological evolution to take place in 6,000 years. So thus, we believe, as the Bible indicates, that the different days of creation saw different um, kinds of organisms created. So that's one standard of difference. And, and and there are multiple standards, which we'll talk about as we go through, um, but the fact of the matter is that this means there are limits to common ancestry that must be uncovered. But now this leads us to another thing uh, that is important to realize. Current methods of evolutionary biosystematics don't account for discontinuity well, um, if at all. Um, cladistics is the current accepted uh, method of biosystematics for evolutionary thinking and where you form clades on this different evolutionary tree of life. The problem is that these clades do not account for discontinuity. They deal only with continuity. Um, what kind of similar uh, traits organisms share. So if we're going to understand from a creationist perspective the history of the world, then we need a holistic model of biosystematics that accounts well for continuity and discontinuity if we're going to determine the nature of created kinds. Now, we should take time to say something important um, here. If you're only considering continuity. I-, I want you to grasp this. Um, and, and in fact, let me let me qualify it a little bit. Uh, it is very common in origins debates to say things like evolution is stupid. How could you believe something so stupid? Um, how could you possibly think that we came from Iraq and yada yada yada? Okay, I realize that there is a bit of rhetorical force and rhetorical value to use that kind of language, but it's very disingenuous to the view that many evolutionary biologists actually hold. If you'll listen to what I have to say here, I think it's going to be valuable to you in these discussions. If you're only considering continuity, it is just computationally... Correct and accurate that all organisms can trace back to a common ancestor. Look, um, we're talking about computer modeling. We're talking about using very advanced software that is able to determine um, characteristics that are shared By organisms. These are called derived characteristics or derived traits. And using these things, evolutionary biologists determine a tree of relationships um, with branch offs called clades between organisms. Uh, And this is used to support the notion of common descent. But what we need to remember is that it's just one framework. Uh, There's no necessity that we use this metric to group organisms. However, it is inaccurate to say that that method of um, grouping organisms does not work or is stupid or is incorrect. Uh, Evolutionary biology, really, at the core of it, is nothing more than a method of organizing and classifying organisms. So we need to understand that it... To call the method stupid, this is why many creationists don't get much credibility in this discussion, is because they don't realize that this is just computationally correct. As far as a computer program is concerned, this works. And it's very successful as far as theories are concerned. So, um,. We need to be mindful of that. Now, I am not saying that an evolution is correct. I think there are multiple ways to cash this out. And I think there are ways of cashing it out that don't require billions of years. And I think there are ways of cashing it out that do not require Darwinian evolution. One of the... Um, One of the teachers whose work we'll reference quite a bit throughout this, his name is Dr. Kurt Wise. He is a paleontologist. Paleontology is an integrated field that deals with biology and geology, so he is very well versed in both of these categories. And he has even suggested using the illustration of noodles to get past this point. When we're talking about evolutionary biosystematics or the classification of organisms versus um, creationist uh, biosystematics, we're just talking about different frameworks to apply to the available evidence to uh, manufacture a particular result. And it just so happens that you can make sense of things on the timelines that we're talking about if you begin dealing with um, issues of continuity and discontinuity. If you look at things uh, from the perspective that we could be dealing with created organisms, it's just like if you have, and this is the illustration he suggests, is noodles. If you have a box or say, multiple boxes even of noodles, you could classify those noodles in many different ways. You could classify them according to size, shape, brand. Uh, If they have ridges, what kind of ridges they have, what kind of holes and openings they have. There are multiple ways you could classify noodles. And similarly, there are multiple ways you could classify organisms. Philosophical pre-commitments are the only limitations as to how you carry out your classification. And we're not going to go into all this, but cladistics, the modern method, is not the method of classification that has always been used on evolutionary views. So understand that even evolutionists have changed the way they look at and classify organisms. Now let me ask you a question. Why can't we do the same? Think about it for a minute. Why are creationists not justified in creating methods for classifying organisms that comport with our understanding of history? Remember, the Bible is a theological work of history. It describes a God who created in history, who acted throughout history, who stepped into history himself, And has united his life to believers throughout history who have made history. God's book even records history in advance. We know this is prophecy. So we have history and we use a particular understanding of science in order to get to the bottom of mechanically how that history shakes out. And... There is no reason for not doing this other than philosophical pre-commitments to naturalism. We call these a priori commitments or uh, commitments that come in before the evidence comes to bear on something. And so that's what the kind of thing we are dealing with. However, we need to be at least generous and understanding of the fact that we're talking, when we, when we look at, Evolutionary biosystematics. We're talking about sophisticated computer, computer programs that are just acting out on computations that are absolutely correct according to the given parameters. So let's understand that as we move into our next category here. We want to look at methods then of baromenology. So now we know what a kind is. Let's talk about methods of baromenology. So classically, Um, The earliest baromenologists, beginning with Marsh himself, uh, really classified organisms according to the ability to hybridize or otherwise successfully reproduce. So the first method of baromenology then is hybridization. Uh, understanding things in light of an organism's ability to hybridize. According to Kurt Wise, quote, traditionally, the phrase after their kind is sought to mean that God created organisms to reproduce after their kind. That is, to mate only with others of their own kind. This has been commonly understood to mean that God created each biblical kind with built-in genetic barriers that prevented them from being able to reproduce with any organism outside that kind. Such barriers may or may not exist, as scripture does not demand their existence. But if they do exist, genetic relatedness obviously spread through created kinds as time went on it would follow then that uh, organisms that can successfully interbreed should be of the same created kind. And even if uncrossable genetic barriers do not exist, even if kinds are less formally defined, as we talked about earlier with Pete Williams, uh, it is still likely that successful crosses indicate which organisms are of the same kind. So let me give you an example of this. Two dogs can sexually reproduce a dog a dog and a wolf uh, can hybridize and reproduce something dog-like indicating on this method then that they are members of the same kind and so hybridization is seen as, as quite a successful criteria um And again, while it is helpful, um, especially for identifying um, baraman with the naked eye, um, there are certain limitations to this method. Um, Hybridization criteria is exact; it's quite exact, Um, and yet we find it. uh, It is very common. Um, This is very uh, unexpected on old age. Theory, and here's what I mean by that the criteria is exact, um, meaning it is it it should be something that is rare to find on evolutionary views, it it should be um unheard of uh, for this sort of hybridization if we really are 4.5 billion years into um uh, our time on earth, so to speak. Okay, so um, their habits of the uh, we're talking about different organisms with the ability to hybridize um, their habits must have the same timing they must seek mates at the same time of the year go about their business at the same time of the day they must be attracted to one another they must be compatible both physically and chemically these are just some of the criteria that must be correct if uh, organisms are going to be able to successfully hybridize. And what we find is much, much hybridization is able to take place. Um, Many, many organisms are able to successfully cross. Uh, If I had time, I would run through multiple examples. Um, One limitation on this uh, of hybridization is reproductive isolation. So two bunnies, which are obviously of the same kind, may actually be sexually incompatible due to um, ring speciation, for example. Uh, A ring species is um, uh, defined by wise here as a set of populations arranged geographically in a closed loop. Um, That is, frog populations along the shore of a lake or fruit fly populations around the base of a mountain. Where all but one pair of populations can interbreed with adjacent species. So, again, we have here a case where two organisms can obviously be of the same baramin, even though they cannot hybridize. And the evolutionist points to that and says, Aha, gotcha. Uh, this doesn't work. You, you can't look at things this way. That's, this doesn't mean they're of the same kind, etc. But look at it, it. does not present a problem uh, for bamrenology or young age creationism in general. Um, it does not present a problem at all for that. It just means we need to understand the term kind in a deeper way. Than reproductive considerations, which we're getting to, by the way. Uh, we're going to talk about that here. Uh, there is more to the story than just hybridization. Um, look at you, you, you can't look at two bunnies who are reproductively isolated from each other and say they're not the same thing when they obviously are. So that means there must be more to the story. And guess what? There is. Another limitation that we find on the hybridization method is that um, it does not apply to asexual or fossil organisms uh, or to organisms that are not known to hybridize. <laughs> so, um, again, e- even implicit in the, very, uh, in the very question here of is hybridization a, a accurate criteria? Of course it is, um, but it can't apply to organisms that are asexual or fossil um, and or uh, obviously organisms that are not known to hybridize so that means there must be criteria that we can look at otherwise so another bit of uh, criteria could be sufficient similarity um, this criteria um, is much less specific, and it should be regarded as such. Uh, but if an organism can be shown to be sufficiently similar to another, it becomes an additive criterion, and uh, by that reckoning, we could add this organism to a uh, baramen, or to a created kind. Um, some examples of similarity in this case might be genetic similarities, um, homological similarities, and morphological similarities. These are things that you can look at and um, plug into a computer program and understand uh, how they relate to one another. All right, now, by the same reckoning, differences in the above are considered to be subtractive criteria. Um, They don't identify continuity, but rather discontinuity. And Wise gives us a few examples of this. Um, uh, Ribosomes, so these are uh, fundamental machines within your DNA, which make chains of amino acids from the information on the um, mRNA, the messenger RNA. Uh, yet, the ribosomes between um bacteria, eubacteria, and eukaryotes are distinctly different, uh, suggesting that maybe these organisms were created separately. Maybe they are part of a different kind. The process used by the machinery that actually copies the DNA and puts it into this form of messenger RNA is also quite different uh, among different kinds of organisms. Metabolism. Um, Organisms receive energy from the environment in many different ways, like photosynthesis. Um, Some get them from food molecules. Some organisms get them from nitrogen, and some even from hydrogen. Uh, So these are considerations that we need to... um, consider uh, if these if the building blocks for these things are arranged in such a fundamentally different way it suggests a separate origin reproductive machinery is vastly different uh, among different groups of organisms as well and must have somehow developed independently in these different groups. Um, and the, these are kind of at the more micro scale, but on the larger scale, the subgrouping of phyla, uh, as a whole even speaks to these differences. Um, for example, the fungi like protists are, uh, divided according to how DNA from the two parents is combined to reproduce the next generation. Uh, the algae are divided according to the pigments used in photosynthesis and like the protists by how cells divide to reproduce the next generation or to produce the larger organism. The plants are divided according to how they reproduce. Uh, the animals are divided according to how they reproduce and how they develop, including the development of body symmetry. So, um, the date of creation also, in addition to all these things, remember this is creationist systematics after all, uh, it's also important uh, if, if 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 an organism was created on a different day, then that is a factor that goes into it. Um, it means they are a different kind of organism than the other ones, and so that must be taken into account. So so far we have hybridization, we have sufficient similarity, and we also have statistical clustering. Statistical clustering. This is probably the newest uh, method that has been offered, and this has been developed pretty extensively by Dr. Todd Wood, and he's still doing more work on this um, constantly. This is his most active area of research, Um, but uh, from a computational standpoint, this is arguably one of the stronger ways of looking at and approaching um, barominology, and it certainly adds a helpful new level of understanding to, um, to biological classification. So Wood points out, quote, statistical barominology uh, methods have the potential to overcome limitations um, of the other creationist um, systematics techniques. Marsh's hybridization-based method, although adopted and applied by German uh, creationists, cannot be applied to asexual or fossil organisms or to organisms that are not known to hybridize. We discussed that a minute ago. In contrast... Uh, statistical baron methods have been successfully applied to fossil equids. Further, studies of groups um, with few known hybrids, such as the felids, have been conducted and are currently underway at the time uh, of the writing that I was quoting here. This was a while ago. As a result of these developments, creationists can apply their own systematics methods to the full diversity of life for the first time in history. So, we have multiple methods now to come together. Now, we have a couple important terms before we move forward on understanding this Um, biological character space, potentiality region, continuity, and discontinuity. And again, this uh, information here has been taken from the refined Behrman concept of uh, Wood and Wise and. Uh, I want to say Sanders, and there was one more who worked on this. Okay, uh, first, biological character space. Um, This represents a theoretical multidimensional space in which all biological characteristics comprise individual dimensions. So think about um, like a plot, like a graph. Particular character states occupy unique positions along the dimension that corresponds to the appropriate character. An individual organism is then precisely described by a point in biological character space. Because organisms are not uniformly distributed throughout character space, we propose that not all organismal forms are possible. Close quote. Okay? Now, a uh, potentiality region then is defined as any concrete region of biological character space within which organismal form is possible possible. So begin thinking about um, a a specific region uh, on a plot or on a graph. Any point that does not lie within a a potentiality region describes an organism that does not or cannot exist. Because the potentiality region describes possible organismal forms with respect to biological character space, the potentiality regions do not change. Because all potentiality regions are bounded by regions of character space that describe impossible organismal forms, gradualistic transmutations from one potentiality region to another are not possible. If you're picturing this in your mind, you can kind of understand what's happening here. All right, the term continuity is used to describe significant holistic similarity between two different organisms. Um, By significant, uh, they mean that the similarity between the two organisms should be statistically verifiable or perhaps biologically meaningful, and by holistic, uh, they mean that the similarity between the organisms should embrace all types of biological characteristics. In uh, their framework of biological character space, continuous organisms should be close together and will certainly be within the same potentiality region. Two organisms continuous with the same third organism would also be continuous, allowing organisms to form shapes or clouds of continuity in biological character space. And discontinuity is a significant holistic difference between two organisms. Two organisms that are continuous with respect to each other are found in separate potentiality regions. Notice that a lack of continuity does not, by default, constitute evidence of discontinuity. significant holistic difference must be demonstrated so when we define these terms we begin to understand how these statistical methods are going to shake out now there are a few overarching methods that have been applied to this Uh, barometric distance so Uh, On this way of looking at it, the number of characters in which two taxa differ uh, are expressed as a fraction of the total characters analyzed. Barometric distances between taxa can then be correlated by linear regression, yielding both a correlation coefficient and a probability. Significant positive correlation indicates taxa, which are very close in character space, while significant negative correlation indicates taxa very far apart. Analysis of Patterns is another, is another one, uh, also called Anopa, In it treats characters as separate spatial dimensions, with each taxon represented as a point in n-dimensional space, where n is the number of characters. Anopa calculations then project the n-dimensional taxic pattern onto three dimensions, much in the same way that light projects shadows of three-dimensional objects onto two-dimensional surfaces. And then uh, classical multidimensional scaling, which is the, um, the one that Dr. Wood works with the most, um, converts distance data for a given set of points into a set of k-dimensional coordinates, where k is a predetermined dimensionality. When applied to barometric distances, a three-dimensional set of points representing the taxa can be generated and visualized using 3D viewing software. By revealing three-dimensional patterns, uh, multidimensional scaling resembles 3D ANOPA, whereas ANOPA calculates 3D patterns directly from character data. Multidimensional scaling requires barometric distances to summarize character data, and as a result, multidimensional scaling can serve as an independent verification of 3D ANOPA patterns while also providing a novel means of visualizing barometric Distances, so this multi-dimensional scaling method really takes the best of the other two methods and comes together with it. Now, as you can see, uh, and this is um, the last thing we'll talk about in terms of uh, the methods of barominology. We're going to go a little over our usual amount of time today and, and keep talking um, because I think this is an important subject that all needs to stay within one podcast. Uh, we're going to deal with classifications within barominology in just a moment, but. Um, you can see how what we're dealing with here goes much deeper than just whether or not uh, a dog and a wolf can hybridize. We are looking at certain features uh, and characteristics and traits in organisms and statistically determining whether or not uh, these organisms uh, are able to share a common ancestor with another in terms of this calculation. We are visualizing the differences between organisms on plots and graphs. We are understanding what kind of things make an organism um, what they are, or what kind of things make one organism relatable to another, or c- continuous with another, and what kind of things also make them discontinuous with another. And we can actually visualize this data based on these methods. I mean, this is absolutely astonishing. And it's only getting better. And the point, really, that I want to drive home with all of this is this is a very scientific enterprise. And when people say things like creation science, pseudoscience, yada, 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 what they really mean by that is you're bringing God into your science. But look it. Have I mentioned God in this discussion of baromenology? Other than the fact that we understand that what we're dealing with is creation. We're talking about science. Good science. To determine these differences. So understand that. Um, We can understand the relatedness of organisms and the unrelatedness of organisms on scientific terms alone, yes, in such a way that it comports with the history of the world that we're talking about, but we're not talking about the age of the earth here, really, or anything like that. We're just talking about one group of organisms being holistically distinct from another set of organisms, and using the data we find to come to a reasonable conclusion. That's what barominology is. Now, that is the main thrust of the discussion. I do want to give you some practical um, definitions here so that you can, as you read more creationist literature and as we talk about things more, you will be able to kind of keep up in the discussion. So there are some classifications within baronology that we need to know about. So I'm going to give you the definition um, of each of those things and um, then also give you maybe some examples of those things, okay? So uh, according to Wise, and uh, remember, Wise kind of really built on this idea and, and, and came up with the whole field of barominology in the early 90s, and here's how he defines a, a Brahmin. Quote, a complete Brahmin would include both living and dead organisms in the present, organisms represented as fossils, In organisms we can never gain access to, direct access to, such as past forms that were never preserved or have never been discovered as fossils. Baromenology restricts its study to known organisms, living individuals plus the dead ones we know about because we have actual bodies or fossils. It is only after conclusions are drawn about known organisms that speculations about entire burramans can be made, close quote. Now, here is a technical definition according to the refined Behrman concept. Quote, the actualization of a potentiality region at any point or period in history, including, but not limited to, all of history. Close quote. So, uh, the Brahmin can include organisms created within a uh, potentiality region, like we talked about. All of their descendants, or all of the extant organisms, from a potentiality region. Critical to the definition of the Baraman or the Brahmin is that it encompasses all of the members of a potentiality region alive at any given time. Since it is unlikely that all members of a potentiality region can actually be known, the Brahmin is a purely theoretical construct. Now that's important because my original question, if you remember, which we're going to deal with in a minute, is can we ever find the biblical kinds? Can we ever find the biblical kinds? And here's the thing. Possibly, but since we're dealing with organisms, uh, undoubtedly, that we will never know about, the Brahman can only be a theoretical construct. So think about that. Now, um, there are other terms, though, that are associated with this that will help us to classify organisms further, uh, such as the hollow Barahman. Alright, now this is a group of known organisms that share continuity. That is, um, each member is continuous with at least one other member and are bounded by discontinuity. Whereas the baraman can be used in a purely theoretical sense to describe organisms that existed at some point in history, the hollow Brahman is reserved for organisms, organisms that are known to us by some kind of evidence. As uh, members of a Brahman, members of the same hollow Brahmin share continuity with at least one other member of the hollow Brahman, but discontinuity with organisms outside of that hollow Brahman. The hollow Brahman then, is the complete set of known organisms that belong to a single Brahmin. So hopefully that makes sense. The Brahman is a theoretical construct, but the hollow Brahmin encompasses all of the actual known organisms that belong to that so, for example, the hollow baramen containing dogs includes at least coyotes, wolves, dingoes, and foxes. You can kind of see how that shakes out. But it could include other uh, dog-like organisms that we are not yet aware of. Once we become aware of them, we can apply some of these tests to them uh, and then reach a conclusion about whether or not it belongs inside of this hollow Baramin. Okay, a monobaramin is a group of known organisms that share continuity without regard to discontinuity with other organisms. Uh, so domestic dogs, for example, would comprise a monobaramin because all of them can interbreed. Because wolves, coyotes, and dingoes can interbreed with domestic dogs, they can also be added um, to this dog Manu And because certain foxes can interbreed with dingoes, they can also be added. So the foxes that are not known to interbreed can still be included because of their high similarity to foxes that do interbreed with dogs. So you see how the methods we applied earlier, how this is kind of shaking out. We're utilizing methods of uh, high similarity and hybridization, and also statistical clustering, all together, and this is helping us to form the brahman, the hollow brahman, the mono brahman, and then there's two more we need to talk about: the poly and the apo So the poly is an artificial group of known organisms that share continuity and discontinuity with different members of the same group. Poly consist of parts of different hollow And should be avoided in biosystematics. So this is uh, a classification that is not really helpful uh, for our purposes. Um, It's just a construct that helps us to identify organisms at another level. Okay and then finally the Apobaramin is a group of known organisms bounded by discontinuity Without regard to internal continuity of its members. Um, so these may describe actual structures of baramans in biological character space, uh, such as mammals, or an apobaraman may be a single hollow baraman. So here's an example. All humans and known land animals, for example, would make up an apobaraman because all of these organisms were created on a separate day of creation from all other organisms. And because humans were created separately from land animals, Genesis 2.7 references that, all humans would comprise one Apobrahman, and all land animals would comprise another. So do you get the picture there? You could be looking at at humans and animals, and yet you're actually looking at three different apobaramins. And so what you want to do is try to distill apobaramans down into monobaramins and then you can start to understand what the actual brahman for that um, for that kind looks like, or what the actual uh, organisms that belong to that Brahmin look like. Okay, let's answer the question then. Can we ever find the original kinds? in Genesis. Well, we've spent uh, roughly the last hour or so talking about that. Um, most likely not. Most likely not. But we are getting closer. Um, again, uh, <laughs> the old uh, uh, adage is true. We don't know what we don't know. This is why the Brahman is a theoretical construct, because uh, we don't know what organisms that we don't know about, and so we don't know to add them to the Brahmin. Theoretically, though, we're getting closer. As we use these methods, we um, can get closer uh, to understanding, as more organisms are discovered, where they fit into the creationist uh, orchard of life. But again, we have to know about them first. Um By the way, where's your contribution? You interested in these subjects? Perhaps you're a young person listening. Maybe you're a parent and you have young people listening, getting ready to go into college. Maybe they're smart. Um, Why not consider becoming a creationist uh, baromenologist? Why not get in and help us discover new organisms and help us discover where they fit in the context of biblical history? Okay, for all of this, though, what we should not miss, even if we can't directly answer the question, is we should not miss the explanatory power that creationist biology provides. I mean, we've talked about a lot this morning, some difficult concepts. Maybe you'll have to listen to this podcast two or three times to really get to the bottom of it. But we're talking about massive amounts of explanatory power. Uh, Kurt Wise gives us a, a pretty helpful list and he claims that young age creation theory actually explains the same features presented by biological evolution and even more. He says that creationism explains not just the similarities among trees of similarity and the similarities between phylo- phylogeny and ontogeny, but also the dissimilarities in these things. Creationism explains not just the fact that organisms can be arranged in a hierarchy of increasingly large groups, but also why there are so many characters that seem to contradict that pattern. Creationism not only explains the near perfection of the world, but it seems to better explain the relative rarity of imperfection. Creationism not only explains the similarities among organisms used by evolutionists to argue for relatedness, but it also explains the commonness of evidence for unrelatedness. Creationism provides explanation for the incredible beauty of biology, the complexity and integrating, or excuse me, an integration of complexity that so strongly characterizes the Earth's organisms as well as the language structure of DNA. Creationism explains the commonness of interspecific hybridation what seems to be low mutational load in organisms, as well as the sudden appearance of organisms and communities of organisms in the fossil record. And again, he, he referenced there a lot of concepts we did not talk about today because each one of those things really uh, could be its own, um, its own lesson, and perhaps we will do just that with it at some point. Um, but nevertheless, we... Uh, what we find is the explanatory power of creationism, not just because we could say, God did it. That's not the point. Did, 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 did In hearing that list I just read to you, do you get the notion that God did it is what Dr. Kurt Wise is appealing to? Of course not. He's looking at the actual data, the actual features of a world, and saying, what best explains this? And his argument is that creationism explains all of the data that evolution presents, and even more. So the future of this research, I think, is very bright. But look, it's going to take more participation. It's going to take more creation scientists. It's going to take more people getting into the game, wanting to glorify and honor their Lord through the discovery of His world and exploring along with these great scientists. What uh, the history of the earth looks like from a scientific perspective in a young age biblical understanding of history. Where's your contribution? Will you get involved? Will you be the next one? Will you be the person in five years from now? I'm reading out your information from your papers in this podcast, teaching your information On the Creation Academy? I hope so. I hope so. Would you consider that? Consider that. Consider being an inspiration to somebody else along those lines. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and want to say thank you for the gift of salvation that as Christians you have given us. We want to thank you for uniting yourself to us. In the person of Christ and through the person of the Holy Spirit. What an honor to know that the God who created the universe loves each and every one of us and has offered himself as a ransom. Father, as we seek to honor you, as we seek to study your creation, Lord, I pray that you would bless our endeavors. Uh, the scientists who are doing the work, the popularizers like me who are attempting to get the message out there. Father, I pray that you would just help us to have a gracious Christian spirit and attitude. Help us to have sharp minds, a sharp intellect, um, character, as we go through uh, and have conversations that matter with people who matter because they are made in your image. And Lord, I pray that you would um, help us to... uh, Remember that all of this was created, according to Revelation 4.11, for your glory. Remind us of that each and every day, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. Went about 15 minutes over. Uh, than we usually do, which isn't too bad. Uh, I apologize for that, but I trust this information has been valuable and helpful to you and that you can use it uh, in your discussions with others. Uh, feel free to reference it. Send others to the um, website where the show notes will be posted so they can reference it and get some of the uh, uh, information from the horse's mouth, so to speak. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. I certainly appreciate you. Certainly appreciate the opportunity to serve you. We're close to 6,000 downloads on the podcast right now, which to me is an absolute blessing. Uh, The Lord has really blessed. He's continuing to bless. If you think about it, leave a review for the podcast. It helps other people to find it. You can do that by going to iTunes or onto the Google Podcasts app and submitting your reviews there. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Have a great day. Have a great week. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.